how Ukraine gave up its nukes and why this made it vulnerable. You're listening to the podcast Explain Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. In 1994, Ukraine gave up the nuclear weapons it had inherited from the Soviet Union. It was invited to sign the Budapest Memorandum with Russia, the UK, the US, which was supposed to give Ukraine security assurances. Russia broke these assurances first in 2014 and then in 2022 by invading and occupying parts of the Ukrainian territory. Since 1994, Ukraine has found itself in a security vacuum which directly or indirectly invited Russia to attack. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. In this episode, I speak to Mariana Budjerin, senior research associate at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center. Mariana is the author of the recent book Inheriting the Bomb: The Collapse of the USSR and the Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine. In our conversation, we talk about the genealogy of the Budapest Memorandum, its consequences for today's war, Russia's nuclear blackmail, and lessons for the future. This is our podcast series Thinking in Dark Times, which seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Before we start, let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, a Ukrainian media NGO. We are based in Ukraine. You can support us at patreon.com/ukraineworld. Mariana Budjarin, thanks so much for joining this podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. You are the author of of the book Inheriting the Bomb: The Collapse of the USSR and the Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine, and this wonderful book is right now on 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 our table, on my table. Can we say that this war which Russia wages against Ukraine is a consequence of 1994, the Budapest Memorandum, and the the way how Ukraine actually renounced its nuclear weapons and uh, stayed unprotected. It is certainly um part of the consequence. I would I would start the um the count uh, down to this war in 1991. It's a consequence of the Soviet collapse and the way the Soviet collapse was handled, in particular by the West. Uh there has been a perennial conflation of the Soviet Union and Russia. over decades decades of cold war um i mean even some of the most kind of well informed commentators and historians would use these terms interchangeably right soviet russia russia soviet union etc and um that made sense then right and we could uh, in a way almost understand how you know people had limited access to this kind of black box that was the Soviet Union they would come perhaps sometimes to Moscow right and not see what's going on beyond it but in the late 80s and early 90s that became consequential because suddenly um uh, the Soviet Union collapsed 
And it was as if the earth opened up and out of it came all these other people, right? Ukrainians and, and Georgians and Kazakhs. And who were they? And why did they stage some kind of demands uh, about sovereignty and independence and so forth? Um, so part of this, of this blindness in the West um, translated in this unquestioned acceptance that it would only be Russia that would inherit all of the major statuses of the Soviet Union in the international political order. Um, and of course, that also pertained to nuclear weapons. So Russia uncontestedly inherited the Soviet seat under the um, treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. It's a it's a very kind of large, comprehensive treaty that was signed in 1968, came into force in 1970, and recognized only five nuclear weapon states. Right, the those who developed nuclear weapons before 1968, and that's the United States, the Soviet Union, um, Great Britain, France, and China, and all the other states were supposed to join as non-nuclear states. And the idea was that, um, you know, the fewer nuclear weapon states in the world, the better for everyone, right? These, these are terrible weapons of mass destruction, right? We don't want more states having more weapons and more fingers on, on the proverbial red button. And so when one of those states basically ceased to exist as a subject of international relations, a subject of international law, it became unquestioned that it was Russia, of course, that should inherit all of these, um, this status in particular under the NPT, but also other statuses such as, you know, the permanent seat in the UN. And so the, uh, the kind of the question of how the nuclear inheritance of other, the non-Russian successor states, there were also successor states of the Soviet Union, became the, the crux of the matter that I talk about in, in my book. And uh, I have to, in a way, give Ukrainian leaders of that time credit for, for actually even... Uh, even taking that position and even staging this kind of negotiations and demanding something like the Budapest Memorandum and Security, well, assurances in English and Ukrainian, it's translated as guarantees, that that document was inadequate to provide a comprehensive solution for Ukrainian security predicament was obvious even then. But it was not nothing, right? It was um, it was a document that accompanied Ukraine renunciation of nuclear weapons, accession to the NPT as a non-nuclear state, and it became part and parcel of a broader non-proliferation regime. So today, when it, or not just today, back in 2014, when it was violated by, by one of the signatories, Russia, um, it basically consequences ripple reverberate across the entire non-proliferate global non-proliferation regime and nuclear order so let's try to reconstruct these events and just to put this into into perspective so soviet union collapses 1991 ukraine becomes independent 
then this question of nuclear weapons, then Ukraine is going through a very difficult economic period, it needs support, it needs recognition, it cannot allow itself to alienate itself from... Uh, from other other countries, I remember listening to this. You know, post-Soviet radio. I was 11 years old when Soviet Union collapsed, and uh, and uh, all this. You know, rhetoric. You, you probably remember that. That okay, Ukraine was invited to join the NATO Partnership for Peace. It's a, such a recognition, such an honor. So this was that that rhetoric at the time. And then uh, there was there is this talk that okay, Ukrainians, you need to give away your nuclear weapons, that is only Russia to have these nuclear weapons. Uh, instead, we will give you something, we will give you a paper, which was called later Budapest Memorandum, uh, and then Ukraine gets it, and then it is attacked in 2014, and it doesn't work. So, can we say that this was a mistake? Can we say that this, is a, this was a hypocrisy? Who is guilty in that, mm. in all that? Um, that's a very difficult question. Let well, let's start with reconstru- reconstructing the the events uh, in, in in the kind of major junctures of this story. Ukraine's nuclear story really starts in um, in July 1990. On July 16th, uh, 1990, a full year and a half before the Soviet collapse, and that's when the Ukrainian parliament that for the first time includes political opposition to the Communist Party. 25% of the seats belong to kind of the so-called National Democrats, right, that, that want to make Ukraine an independent state. And this parliament passes the Declaration of State Sovereignty of Ukraine. And in this declaration, there is a clause. There is an article that says Ukraine in the future desires to become a permanently neutral state that does not possess nuclear weapons. Why? Who? It was the, the actually the opposition that introduced this anti-nuclear clause uh, into the declaration without much dissent at all. Um, so there wasn't much of a discussion about it. Well, there are two reasons for it. One was Chernobyl, right? If, and you probably recall, it was an immense social trauma. And it was one of the major causes of the Soviet collapse, this kind of um, indignation uh, that was spurred by Chernobyl. And everything that was nuclear was also associated with this dysfunction of the system, the, the negligence with, with which you know, they build reactors, with which they conducted testing, with which they handled the aftermath um, of the accident. Um, and anti-nuclear became synonymous almost with anti-institutional, with anti-center, center being Moscow, with anti-Soviet. Uh, um, so that was that was part of the reason, right? They, they wanting to distance um, Ukraine, wanting to distance itself from that old paradigm that was that included these nuclear tragedies. Another reason was the fact that Ukraine was actually a major part in Soviet military planning. It was a highly militarized piece of real estate for the Soviet Union, especially after um, the withdrawal of Soviet troops from the Warsaw Pact countries. 
many of them were bivouacked, were contemporarily stationed in Ukraine. There were a million men under arms on Ukrainian territory in 1990 and 1991. And Ukraine was the site of deployment of some of the most modern, latest armaments by the Soviet Union, because this is where the fight with NATO was going to happen, right? Um, and so for Ukraine to declare at that, at that point, still being part of the Soviet Union, that we want to be neutral and we want your Moscow nuclear arms out of our territory was a revolutionary step. We tend to look at it now from our standpoint, from thinking, oh, um, you know, um, it was something that, you know, neutrality is a negative term now. Then neutrality was absolutely revolutionary because it meant neutrality from the Soviet Union into which we were, Ukraine was roped by these hyper-centralized command and control systems that went way above the head of any Republican leadership. They didn't even know what was deployed on Ukraine's territory. These military chains of command went straight over the Republican leadership. So, so that became the basis, right? This anti-nuclear clause became the basis of further future discussions about nuclear weapons. It was a document, you know, legally binding document that Ukrainian Rada itself passed without any pressure from the outside. And so then when history kind of... Um, took its own course, right? And Ukraine became an independent state without having to sever these military kind of tethers, these military bonds that uh, chained it to Moscow. Then, only then after, you know, in the fall of 1991, did the nuclear question become more nuanced. And the very people who wanted this neutrality, to, who wanted the anti-nuclear status for Ukraine, started thinking, well, wait a minute, we are already independent and, and these weapons are still in our territory and they are Ukraine's property at the very least, um, to which Ukraine is entitled, um, you know, just like to any other property it inherited, all the other assets, military and civilian and so forth. And so Ukraine should have a voice in negotiating, should have a voice, an agency in deciding what to do with it. Um, and from that point on, Ukraine became, you know, basically got a seat at the table uh, with the United States and Russia and, you know, Belarus and Kazakhstan also joined these uh, negotiations. And, um, you know, from that point on, Ukraine was in a position or to, to kind of... Um, elaborate its own positions and demands, but also had to respond to a very staunch position by the United States, um, which, you know, very early on in, in the fall of 1991, when they saw that the Soviet Union was basically very quickly disintegrating, uh, formulated their position, and their position was there should be only one nuclear successor to the Soviet Union, period. Uh, whether it's Russia or some kind of confederation, whatever is going to emerge on the post-Soviet space, it is up to you guys to decide. But there has to, there can be only one. It's like, you remember that show, The Highlander, you know, there could be only one. Um, and that was something Ukraine had to contend with. 
It should be only one and then guess who it, who it would be. Yeah, guess who it would be. There was uh, no doubt that that would be Russia. Um, having said that, Ukraine did um, kind of stake its position that it should have this, this seat at the table, it should have agency. It was admitted as um, an equal successor state to the Soviet Union to a major arms control treaty that covered these armaments deployed in Ukraine's territory. That was the so-called START Treaty, Strategic Arms Reductions and Limitations Treaty, that was signed by Gorbachev and um, and Bush in Moscow on July 31st, 1991, something like three weeks before the coup and before the whole thing collapsed. And then the situation was such that, you know, one of the parties to the treaty actually doesn't exist anymore. So what do we do? And the first instinct, both by the United States and Russia, was, well, let's keep the treaty bilateral because, you know, it's between us big, powerful nuclear states. Um, and then we'll just have implementation agreements with all these other kind of provincial um, kind of territories. Uh, but Ukrainians said, no, uh, we want to be a party to the treaty. We want to, neg- we want to consider it, uh, deliberate it, and ratify it in our own legislature. Um, and the same actually was the case for Belarus and Kazakhstan. Uh, that was part of establishing... Um, kind of sovereign agency for them to have this this ability to deliberate and ratify international treaties. And they said it concerns assets deployed on our soil, and they basically got it. So there was um, the Soviet side was multilateralized, so called. So the, instead of one party, they became four parties to that treaty um, through a protocol signed in Lisbon in May 1992, the so-called Lisbon Protocol. And so then the START Treaty went to the Verkhovna Rada. And this is really when the deliberations over the fate of this nuclear inheritance started in earnest in sort of early 1992. And Verkhovna Rada decided, well, if these are our assets uh, and we still want to be a non-nuclear state, that was never reversed really officially from the time of, of the Declaration of Sovereignty, then at least we should get a fair deal. Right? And part of that deal was financial compensation for the fissile materials, so the, the actual nuclear materials contained in the warheads, the highly enriched uranium and plutonium. And the other part of the deal was the political and security component, and that was Ukraine's demand for security guarantees in exchange for giving up nuclear weapons. Now, at some point, you know, there was a consideration of actually maybe reversing the course. It was never um, announced publicly, right? But there were interagency, as they say in the United States, sort of um, earnest considerations of what, you know, what happens if Ukraine does not disarm, it kind of reneges on its own, um, uh, on its own obligation to disarm. And um, there were certain impediments, right? There were there were certain non-negligible uh, impediments to doing so. One was, as you already mentioned, economic. I mean, we remember the early 90s in, in Ukraine, 10,000% inflation, you know, going to um, an exchange, um, you know, currency exchange point and exchanging two or three dollars or five dollars because you know it's it's going the the ukrainian currency would uh would lose value overnight right um 
And what Ukraine did inherit was not exactly um, a quote-unquote usable deterrent. It, those were elements um, of a nuclear program. But Ukraine would have had to invest to build up a nuclear program of its own, in particular to have a full nuclear fuel cycle and warhead production and all of these things. Um, and, you know, economic obstacles were quite formidable at that point. And the other part of the challenge was to overcome international backlash should Ukraine have decided to keep nuclear weapons. And those would have certainly involved, you know, at the very least in isolation um, and then, you know, maybe sanctions, maybe some other negative consequences. So uh, w what you said about this declaration of sovereignty reminds me another uh, episode of the Ukrainian history 100 years ago when uh, the government of the Ukrainian People's Republic, Ukrainska Narodna Respublika, people like Vinnychenko, a, a great writer but not so great prime minister, was saying like, why do we why do we need army at all, right? We we are entering a new era of socialism when people don't don't have armies, and it was uh, such an idealistic statement, which was so much ruinous to Ukrainian statehood because basically in 1917 they just dispersed all the army, which which said, okay, we're gonna fight for you, like hundred thousand people, I think. And then the Bolsheviks came, Muravyov army, and just entered Kiev and, and killed 5,000 people. And uh, basically it was one of the ends of, of the Ukrainian independence. Why I'm saying this is that there is this image of Ukraine as a country of nationalists. Why, why our problem is that we probably at some critical points of our history we were not nationalist enough. I mean nationalist in a good sense of the term, like people who who understand that there is real politics, that you need to fight, that you need to, you need to have an army, you need to have uh, good weapons, right? That perception of weakness actually invites aggression, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, we all remember 1990 is actually the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, 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 the Velvet Revolutions, the end of Fukuyama's end of history, everything, everybody thinks that it's not going to return. And therefore, this episode should be also lessened to, to us because now, like people in West, are, are focused. Okay, the Putin's regime will collapse and everything will be fine. And what we are Ukrainians are saying: Look, we need to guarantee uh, a guarantee that this will not come back. And when I'm talking to uh, our international colleagues, I said there are two options to prevent this war in the future. Either Ukraine joins NATO or Ukraine regains nuclear status. There is no other option. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll talk about this uh, a bit later. But uh, let me come back to 1994. Did Ukraine had a choice? Uh, both political, you already started answering this question, both international, like, okay, if Ukraine says no, we also own these weapons, and please accept this, please understand this, don't put sanctions on us, don't isolate us, let's move forward with this idea. And second, did Ukraine technically had a choice? I mean, could it um, make use of these nuclear elements? Because I've heard a theory that everything will s was so much concentrated in Russia, all the management, that it actually would cost Ukraine an enormous sum of money, but it will not be able to use it at any time. So first, let me push back a little bit on 1990 and the declaration of sovereignty, because there was actually 
a very um, fierce debate about the clause about the establishment of Ukraine's independent armed forces. And that was with much fighting included in the declaration. So when it came to conventional army, the National Democrats, they did learn the lesson of Vinichenko in 1917. Uh, very consciously, it, it comes through in some of the writings of the people from Ruch, uh, you know, another uh, National Democratic um, political forces at that time, that this is a mistake we're not going to make again. And again, you know, that, that was a monumental task to cobble together a loyal and, and sufficient and um, kind of functional um, national uh, armed forces out of whatever the debris <laughs> that was left on the Ukrainian territory. And if you remember, you know, people served all over the place. So Ukraine's first minister of defense, Konstantin Morozov, uh, took a huge risk becoming the Minister of Defense when he was offered this job on September 3rd, 1991. I mean, the Soviet Union still existed, and he was a commander of army, Soviet Air Army, uh, headquartered in Kiev. And he was approached by, you know, Kravchuk and Deruch and offered this position, and he resigned his post, and he was one person officially in the entire Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. There's this amazing document from October 1991, signed by Morozov, uh, where it's a list of maybe 20 or so senior uh, officers, military officers, who have formed an organizational committee, an org komitet, for the establishment of Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. And there's... Um, uh, you know, in his kind of hand, uh, Morozov writes, Vuny buli parshi. They were the first. I love this concept, Orkomitet. Uh, or for, for our listeners, you to understand, if you if you make a party at the kindergarten, you you, you typically name yourself Orkomitet. <laughs> right. But it, just to put into perspective um, the kinds of challenges Ukraine had to contend with, and then you had to bring all of these you know, thousands of Soviet officers to Ukrainian oath. And some of them did not want to take Ukrainian oath and had to be transferred to Russia or whatever, whichever republic they came from. It was this kind of mass migration of military officers. And all of these are military men with arms. I mean, it's a miracle that none of it ended, you know, worse than it did in some kind of bloodshed. So that was the conventional part of the equation. And actually, Morozov himself and parts other parts of Ukrainian military, they saw the, the nuclear part of it, the nuclear element, as a hindrance. I mean, it was already very, very difficult. And they and, and which comes to your second question, how easy or difficult it would have been to establish command and control and to kind of operational control over these nuclear assets. It wasn't going to be easy. It was possible. Ukraine did have options and it did have agency. It was, there are always choices, right? The question is, are they good choices? Um, it seems that other choices for Ukraine would have been worse, at least in the short term. 
it's always very difficult to work with counterfactuals in, in history. As you know, you can't just tweak one variable and then hold everything else constant. And we have no capacity as humans to calculate all of the possible kind of consequences that would have um, kind of emanated uh, from this one decision. But it is fair to say that Ukraine would have encountered considerable costs. The question was not even so much whether Ukraine could grab these assets and establish command and control over them. Technically, it was possible. The question was, well, what then? Right? The Ukraine, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, there were 176 of them deployed in two locations in Pervomaisk and Khmelnytsky, two missile divisions, uh, strategic rocket forces. Those were ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. They were targeted on to the U.S. And most importantly, even if you could retarget them, their ranges, so the, 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 the distance to which they fly, is 10,000 kilometers so what are you going to hold at risk for your nuclear deterrence to work if you're Ukraine and it is Russia that you're deterring? Normally, you need to have valuable military and sometimes civilian, you know, big decision-making centers like Moscow and so forth. Hold them at risk and say, if you ever think of doing something stupid like invading us, we reserve the right to lob off a nuclear missile at you. Well, with 10,000 kilometers, you're going to what? Target Vladivostok? So Ukraine would have had to redesign and rework that inheritance into something that would have worked for Ukraine. There was a certain number of tactical, well, not a certain number, there was a huge number of tactical nuclear weapons um, on Ukrainian soil um, when it became independent, about 3,000, so 2,800 or so. But that was removed from Ukraine very early on by, um, you know, the, the 12th uh, general directorate of the Ministry uh, of Defense of the former Soviet Union. And at that point, it wasn't even sure who it was subordinated in, but it was its function to, to be removing uh, tactical nuclear weapons to the Russian territory from the non-Russian republics. Uh, and it was accomplished by early May 1992. Again, at a time when Ukraine's own defense establishment was very much nascent and was in, in flux and was being established against a very staunch opposition, actually, of what um, we might have forgotten now, but existed then um, as a kind of the leftover of the Soviet def kind of military defense establishment. There was such a thing as the Commonwealth of Independent States, and it had joined armed forces. And these strategic nuclear forces were part of these joint armed forces. Um, and General Shaposhnikov was the commander there, and he would just kind of breeze into Ukraine and, and lob off, you know, bark off orders to people who took Ukrainian oath. And so um, there was a lot of opposition from the top brass in Moscow because there was sort of a hope that this is kind of temporary, right? That, you know, the these uh, uh, kind of crazy republics, they can't, they're not really states, they will sort of come back into this neo-Soviet Russian fold sooner or later, so why bother dismembering the defense establishment? We just keep it uh, all together. 
Let's talk about this Budapest Memorandum. So what is wrong with this? Uh, first, mm, do we understand it correctly that first it's what is wrong is not legally binding? Second, that guarantees from the UK and United States insurances are only related to nuclear attack? Uh, oh, why, why, why is not working? And what uh, what commitments Russia has violated? So when Ukrainians started negotiating uh, security guarantees, and Ukrainians specifically demanded guarantees, not any sort of assurances, as it were, it became very clear very soon to Ukrainian diplomats that the United States was not willing to pledge anything, A, legally binding, B, something that involved, in, in for Americans, a guarantee, a security guarantee, is a very specific thing. And it's something akin to Article 5 of the Washington Treaty of, you know, that, that is extended to NATO allies. Or some kind of mutual defense treaty that, say, the United States has with South Korea or Japan or Taiwan. So... Um, given that Ukraine was such a young country, right, um, United States just doesn't go around the world kind of handing off these kinds of commitments to just anybody. You have to be, and I think first and foremost, an ally kind of already, right, through some kind of historical ties, through, um, uh, through other means, as it were, to get that kind of security guarantee. And it has to be in U.S., national interests, right, first and foremost. So NATO is, whether that was at all realistic to expect in relations to Ukraine, I think not. I mean, certainly it is it is tragic and it is really bad for Ukrainians now that kind of we found ourselves in the security vacuum, right? Ukraine shaped security vacuum in the middle of Europe. Uh, this is, is <laughs> there's no surprise that a war actually erupted here, if you think about it. But at that point in the early 90s, I don't think it was a realistic expectation that the United States would pledge that kind of military uh, commitment to defend Ukraine, right, should anything happen. So the the instructions that that Washington gave its diplomats was no new commitments to Ukraine. And the legally binding part, of course, had to do with the need to, to obtain consent for ratification in the U.S. Congress. And, you know, everybody knows if the U.S. president doesn't have to go to Congress for something, if it, they can achieve it by other means, they do it. Because, you know, they have their own way the sausage is made, uh, as they say, in, in Washington, D.C., and the United States had other means by which to achieve uh, this deal. And so um, it pledged to Ukraine assurances, which, which is to say it took commitments, which were legally binding commitments, from other international documents and instruments, such as the UN Charter, such as the 1975 Helsinki Final Act of the OSCE, Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, it copy-pasted them into this Budapest Memorandum. Uh, and those were not exclusively nuclear-related. 
Absolutely not. Those were commitments to respect international borders, sovereignty, not to threaten or use force, any force, any military force, not just nuclear force against Ukraine. And in addition to those kind of UN Charter and um, Helsinki Act commitments, there were so-called NPT-related, so this non-proliferation regime-related, negative and positive nuclear security assurances that are pledged by the five nuclear weapon states under the NPT to all non-nuclear members of the NPT. And that is not to threaten a country with nuclear weapons. And should this country come under threat to bring the issue to UN Security Council, lo and behold, UN Security Council, uh, with, uh, you know, very little thought of what if it's one of the UN Security Council permanent members that, you know, breaches its commitments. And so Ukrainians tried really hard. They, they, there's a draft treaty, actual and security guarantees in the Ukrainian archives, where, you know, it was going to be a treaty. Uh, this is what Ukrainians wanted to, to have something legally binding. And the United States simply said no. But the Russian Federation um, took even, you know, kind of a, a position even further out of, from Ukrainian interests. You, initially, the Russian Federation was willing to pledge all these things to Ukraine with a caveat. And the caveat was, we'll recognize your borders within the borders of the CIS, that Commonwealth of Independent States, which Russia sort of quickly started viewing as its sphere of influence. You know, so as long as you remain sort of in our in our sphere of influence, yes, we'll recognize your borders, including Crimea. And Ukrainians said, no, this is this is not going to work. And it was actually the United States and these trilateral negotiations that helped Ukraine kind of get Russia to remove this caveat. And so there was progress, there was achievements that Ukrainians um, obtained. In particular, I think the very format uh, in which those assurances were formalized, it does, it is consequential. It does have uh, weight because no other country in the world joined the NPT, joined this non-proliferation regime with this kind of document attached to the act of accession. So this was unique. And this way it became kind of part and parcel of a broader international architecture as it were. So this is the argument we should be making now, not saying, oh, this is a worthless piece of paper. This is a tool for our diplomats to go and say, come on, you guys, <laughs> you know, this, this was pledged. This is not just a matter of Ukrainian security. It is a matter of, of a rule-based international order, which we're all fighting for today. So, um, you know, the, the fact that it's very difficult in general for international institutions or anyone to deal with a violator that's a major, who's a, who's a major stakeholder in international system um, is, is just like a sad fact, right, of, of our international life. Um, is, you know, we say the Budapest Memorandum is not uh, sufficient, it's not legally binding. Well, sure as hell, UN, UN Charter is, and Russia violated UN Charter. And what recourse to action do we have as international community? Only something that's a matter of state policy, right? So international institutions themselves, when they're violated, they have to wait for, for states individually, as it were, to react to these violations. Yes, because we don't have 
Yeah, international police. We don't we have, don't have enforcement mechanisms. We right? don't have international prosecutor. We don't have international, yeah, judges <coughs> who would come to you and you know put you in international jail. Mm. Well, maybe we'll have <coughs> international court, of course, but um, we will we will see how it it will develop in this situation. Let me ask you about the what is happening now, right? Um, there is a nuclear blackmail by Russia. Uh, there is also a development with Belarus. Can we say that by proposing the the stationing of the nuclear weapons in Belarus, Russia is violating the non-proliferation treaty? The short answer is no. Uh, as long as these weapons remain under Russian control they could be deployed to a territory of an ally. And this is something both the United States practice and NATO, but also uh, back in during Cold War in other countries like South Korea, there were U.S. nuclear weapons deployed there, and the Soviet Union practice in the Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, in 1991, those were withdrawn to the national territory with the exception of a small air-based nuclear deterrent that the United States still kept in Europe. So there are six locations uh, in NATO countries in Europe, in Turkey, Belgium, Netherlands, Italy, um, I think maybe Germany, elsewhere, uh, where there are U.S. nuclear bombs, right? So Russia is basically <laughs> doing the whataboutism um, in Belarus. It's saying... You know, you United States can do it, and why can't we? So as long as these, uh, as the as the weapons themselves, remained under Russian control, it's actually not, uh, not does not vi violate the non-proliferation treaty. But certainly, the way Russia uses this nuclear element, this nuclear card from the beginning of this war and continuously now defies any idea what a responsible nuclear state should behave as. Um, there is an understanding that nuclear weapons, their sole purpose is to deter an, a nuclear attack by an adversary, right? Russia uses it for coercion. It wants to coerce they, the Western partners not to support Ukraine, not to get involved, right? It wants to terrorize the population of Europe, terrorize Ukraine, uh, and if I can just note, I think Ukrainians are the only people in the world that are not being terrorized by this rhetoric, uh, that are not being deterred from putting up a resistance by any amount of Russia's nuclear threats. Um, and it's using a civilian nuclear power plant, right, as a military base, as a tool of war. Um, clearly, you know, trying to play on that trauma of Chernobyl, that is still very much present. Um, they're just sort of vandalizing um, not only Ukrainian territory, but the entire notion of what international order has been and what it should be. So that's a very interesting question, because if we look at these thinkers that were trying to theorize the global order during the nuclear age, and I'm thinking primarily about Raymond Aron and his what is called la guerre la paix entre, entre les nations, the war and peace between nations. And this is a paradoxical thought, if you look at, into it. He says that there is different types of peace, and one of them is peace by fear. And he meant, actually, that 
well, like it or not, but Cold War, uh, a Cold War model of peace, and he was writing this text in 1962, during, right during the Caribbean crisis. And one of the uh, one of the things to understand that and and theorize that is actually that when there is this order, when there are nuclear power, big nuclear powers, then it is more peaceful because they are all are afraid of attacking each other, and therefore they keep the balance. And this is a nice thought when you uh, when you're part of one of these big powers. When you're not part of this big power, or you're under the protection of one of those big exactly. powers as their allies. When you're in a vacuum, as Ukraine is, and you rightly said, that it doesn't really change anything. That it it can only complicate things to you. So uh, if we are in this logic of of people like Raymond Aron, then we should think that we should avoid as much as possible the security vacuums. And actually, we should move in the 21st century to the idea that, yes, like it or not, but we need to... Th- there can be no neutral states. Forget about it. That's an illusion. We we should be moving towards the, you know, this is one block, this is another block, this is NATO, this is Chinese block, this is Russian block, etc. Would you agree with this? Well, it seems that the facts on the ground seem to bear out your proposition that um, security vacuums actually invite aggression. It's not a crazy thought. This is something, you know, political science has been saying for quite some time. Um, Perception of weakness uh, invites aggression, right? Uh, um, um, The uh, gray zones equal green lights, as I think recently Kurt Volker, an American ambassador, a former envoy to Ukraine, has put it. Um, And, uh, you know, Russia is deterred uh, by NATO in a sense, whether it's nuclear deterrence per se or maybe even conventional deterrence, you know, Russian forces can barely, uh, you know, mount... uh, uh, an honorable, well, not honorable, but like sufficient kind of resistance to fight with the Ukrainian forces. Can you imagine they picked a fight with NATO? I mean, they would be demolished. Um, so they're not targeting, say, arms convoys uh, in Poland or, you know, they're kind of big warehouses where all of that is concentrated. And Russia could have lobbed a missile there and it's not doing it. And it suggests that that kind of deterrence, it works. Uh, and, you know, conversely, the, the West is, is rather conscious of the risk of escalation. Every arm shipment, every new system is considered very carefully. It usually takes time. You know, it's kind of salami slice tactics, right? So you're nothing to, um, no sudden moves. Um, all of that takes time. All of that, of course, costs Ukrainian lives, right? This is what the price, um, the price of all of that. But, you know, Washington is concerned about this escalation. Biden, President Biden talks about Armageddon, talks about World War III would necessarily be a nuclear conflagration. And so, you know, yes, what you're saying seems to, and uh, what theorists have said throughout the Cold War seems to bear out um, nuclear deterrence, paradoxically, um, in a very... Uh, unsatisfactory way because it's not the kind of uh, sort of setup we feel entirely comfortable with because there's always a risk of the failure of deterrence right and and escalation but it seems to be working and so the proposal that a proposition that ukraine security has to be provided for somehow 
right? We've tried 30 years of this, of this limbo, and it simply doesn't work. And, you know, 2014 Normandy Minsk, that does not work. That only invites further aggression. Um, that, that seems to be very much true. So whether it's NATO membership or some kind of a robust security guarantee by a coalition of the willing, maybe it's not all 30 some members of, of the um, alliance, maybe it's, I don't know, Great Britain, United States and somebody else in Poland, maybe, um, maybe, um, you know, whether Ukraine can pull off its own nuclear deterrent, that is, of course, rather uh, doubtful. But let me ask you about this. So uh, I don't know if you agree with me that there are only two options, either NATO membership or we can say, OK, let, let's do a bilateral security agreement when it's a kind of an article, Article 5, but that's generally the same as NATO, right? And we understand that the biggest, the biggest kind of obstacle for Ukrainian NATO membership is not Hungary or whatever. It's not yeah. Turkey. It's United States. Right. United States do, do not want to take this responsibility. So if we think about any bilateral agreements, either we do it with the United States or we do it with the UK. I doubt we can do it with France. So we should certainly do it, or we, we do it with a certain NATO member country, whether it's possible or not. But anyway, it's engaged, the question of uh, America. But what about regaining the nuclear status? Is it possible we have uh, the cases? India, Pakistan, Israel, maybe? Mm, Israel. Yeah, oftentimes uh, when I'm asked about this, and you know, during the discussions, people bring up you know, North Korea and Iran and look, these countries are sanctioned and they're pariahs and so forth, uh, which is true. But there's also, as you mentioned, India and Pakistan and nobody is sanctioning them, right? They're uh, members of international community, generally in good standing. And if they're not in good standing, it's for other reasons. Than did, did they sign the, uh, the non-proliferation treaty, by the way? They did not. They, they abstained um, initially and then... In 1998, both India and Pakistan, you know, exploded nuclear weapons and declared their own nuclear status. And the United States wasn't happy. Um, and, you know, the Western community wasn't happy. There was a certain sanction bill that was in uh, that was passed. But, you know, fait accompli is fait accompli. And, and now kind of the United States is more... Uh, concern about, you know, managing the relationship between the two and avoiding escalations and managing, you know, security of these weapons and other nuclear facilities in these countries than it is in kind of keeping them in this pariah status box. And Israel is an exception to pretty much everything, including in this regard, except that Israel... Well, it, it has this policy of um, opaqueness. So it never actually declared that it has a nuclear deterrent. We all know it does, right? It's the worst kept secret. But allegedly, um, you know, the bulk of the work was conducted before the nonproliferation treaty was signed. Allegedly. Again, we know very little about 
Israeli nuclear program. But in any case, it is, you know, it is a garrison state. It's a state that's very um, significantly supported by the United States, militarily and otherwise. And much, much of their military might is actually not in in the nuclear uh, realm, but in the conventional realm. They're, they have a high-tech and capable military. And that, I think, should be one of the things Ukraine should really think about. Um, as much as the nuclear option might be there, might be not, it is the conventional armaments, actually, that fight and win wars although nuclear armaments might prevent them right in the first place. Exactly. I mean, th there is a theory uh, in the West, there is a theory that nuclear arms is not even an arm. Like, it's a, it's a, determin it's a deterrent. Right. It's, a, it's an arm that never is used as an arm. The problem is that we <laughs> the, the only way, the only moment we know whether it's a real arm is, is will be too late. <laughs> too late to know. Uh, maybe my last question. So what should we do with all this knowledge about 1994, Budapest Memorandum? What should Ukraine do? What should our partners do? Well, one lesson for Ukraine is that we have to make ourselves capable in the defense realm. Whatever else happens with international partners, our own defense capacity must be solid. And, you know, Ukraine inherited a lot of very significant uh, kind of legacy Soviet defense industry, which was neglected for, for much of the, you know, three decades uh, while we were independent. Um, we're a missile-building country. Those are few and far between. I mean, we have Pivdenne Design Bureau and Pivdenne Mash in Dnipro. We're a space-faring nation, There are 11 of those in the world. We can launch a thing into space, a, a missile into space. It is huge, right? And not one of the Ukrainian governments actually set up a proper program for developing missile building in Ukraine. And today we find ourselves going out with a stretched out hand begging for attackums and storm shadows and such. We could have provided those types of armaments for ourselves, conventional, yes, Um, and perhaps even, you know, having built up a, a proper conventional army, a conventional military, could have served as a, um, as a sufficient deterrent. I'm not convinced it wouldn't have. Because again, you know, as much as, you know, Putin's information is warped, it is uh, certainly very selective. Um, but, you know, a big part of his decision was this perception of Ukrainian weakness, right? He saw this as, you know, an incapable country, incapable of defending itself, not only in terms of that, oh, you know, be his, his troops will be greeted with flowers and all of that, uh, but also militarily. I mean, I think we all, the, the armed forces of Ukraine surprised all of us. I think maybe even we did not know that the full uh, capability of our army. And so, um, again, I, I think we have to figure out a way to, to, to provide for our own de defense as much as possible. And then we will become, um, you know, in, in, at the same time, kind of lobby for... Uh, for the alliances in some shape or form and become 
I think we now have proved that Ukraine could be a very um, attractive and capable military ally. Mariana Bujarin, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, a Ukrainian media NGO. We are based in Ukraine. You can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.